Please open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 10. If you have it, you'll also want your Westminster Confession, well, larger catechism, uh, ready for use. All right, so the first nine chapters of the book have been completed. And here's something I didn't tell you when we were going through it in the hopes that old as well as young would pay attention to it. The first part is focused on youth. Okay, it's focused on children and on the young. So you noticed over and over again son, and you noticed over and over again children, you noticed over and over again things referencing the young man and the simple. I'm sure you picked up on that. But as we move into the middle of the book, the middle of the book, collections 2, 3, and 4, are going to focus on moving up from the young man to the adult and then if we get into collections 5, 6, and 7, those are focused on the father and leader. Okay, so the maturing process. So the, the wisdom literature tends to break up humanity into these categories. And what, we, what we'll find is you know, 1 John explicitly lists those out, for example, and deals with the child and the young man and the father. And you'll, you'll see these categories referenced throughout. But you'll see in particular in collections 5, 6, and 7, so basically chapters 25 through 31, lots of references to kings, masters, things that are suggesting position of authority. And we're going to see the word man used in chapters 10 through 24 almost 110 times in these Proverbs. That's remarkable considering that there are Less than, less than 600 Proverbs in that section. And so in them, one-sixth of them are going to, by name, reference man. So this idea of the adult state. Now there's other terms that are used in that process. But as we get into collection two here, this is titled the Proverbs of Solomon. That's what the text itself refers to itself as. And this section, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through verse 16 of the 22nd chapter... There are 375 Proverbs there. Now, in Hebrew, there's a numbering system where the Hebrew letters, the the consonants, have a numeric value. And the numeric value for Solomon's name is 375. And so the design here is there's 375 Proverbs that are chosen by Solomon. Now, we're told that Solomon had thousands of Proverbs. And I believe that like the Proverbs that are captured here, they were inspired. So they're, they're God-breathed. And so what we have is across time, God has given to the church a Bible suiting to its condition of maturity. And so we have the completed canon, we have the closed canon, and so the church has the full revelation that is necessary for it to be matured. We're told in Ephesians. So the teaching office that continues, we don't have prophets and evangelists and apostles now. We only have the pastor-teacher. And so that public ministry is not an inventing of doctrine, but it is the teaching, the propounding of the canon that has been given to us and the drawing out by necessary inference applications that are fitting. And so the systematizing work. Now Solomon is an exemplar of that systematizing work. What I'd like to do before we 
read the text of Proverbs 10 is go to page 2 of the outline. What you have is a quote there from Ecclesiastes. Now, remember Solomon wrote Song of Solomon in his youth. He wrote Proverbs um, during his, his time of reign. And then Ecclesiastes is clearly written in the later part of his life. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes, the end of the book has this. It says in verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. Okay, so so he's, he's meditating on Proverbs. He's seeking out Proverbs. And he is setting them in order. He's arranging them. Now, this, this book of Proverbs, the tendency is to look at chapter 10 through chapter 30 and say, there seems to be no discernible basis to see how it's ordered. Okay? That's actually Matthew Henry's comment on the book. He says, all right, there seems to be a hodgepodge here. Let's talk about the meaning of each one individually. I would like to suggest to you that Ecclesiastes is telling us that he sets them in order. And the setting in order is a part of the work that we have to benefit from. Now, the first nine chapters, it's so abundantly clear that there's an order there that to say the rest of the book wouldn't have that seems absurd. And when you think about the fact that the first nine chapters are for the youth, which is going to be easier to discern? The order presented to the youth or the order presented for greater levels of maturity? Now, one of the common ways that you can see the structure is chiasms. Right, which we talked about how the whole beginning section is a gigantic chiasm. It's a training tool that shows us a, the, the idea of a chiasm, and then there's going to be more complex and repeated strings of chiasms throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs. And so what we had was the simpler beginning given for youth, and then we have now an increasing complexity of them as they go forward. Now, continuing on in Ecclesiastes verse 10 the preacher sought to find acceptable words now the word acceptable there literally in Hebrew is just delightful delightful words and what was written was upright words of truth okay so beauty righteousness truth and so what we have there is the prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly elements, right? The beauty in terms of priestliness. We have the righteousness in terms of right judgment. And we have the words of truth. And so we have this idea of knowledge and wisdom. So arranging these things in such a way that there is a delightfulness to them. And that's particularly important as you're trying to train people in righteousness. So there's an effort to, to draw them in with the beauty of the words, now, the words of the wise are like goads. What does a goad do? It, it jabs, it, it causes a sticking, a pain, and the pain is an integrity check. Okay, so the idea, the words of the wise, they cause you to examine yourself and they cause some pain. And the goal of the words is to cause you to act with greater integrity. And so those goads, they should, if they are wisely put together be, be placed together well because 
you can cause somebody to have integrity checks in a way that feels undermining, right? You can weaken people. You can just say, well, you're awful, and for this reason and that reason and this other reason, and all the awful things about you, and then that person is likely to collapse, right? And so the collapsing is not the goal. The goal is to drive to greater integrity. The goal is to drive to repentance and to drive to belief and to applying the words of truth. And so there's an orderliness that's meant to help things to be looked at carefully. And so the words of scholars are like well-driven nails, so something that's been put into place properly. Now the word scholar is, is really, literally in the Hebrew there, it's, just a, it's a master of assemblies. Now the word assemblies, in this idea of a public court, think about the, the Sanhedrin. And so the idea that, that essentially moderators or scribes from assemblies are putting these words together. And so men that are respected by the wise. The wise man's wise man. So a wise man has words that are like a goad. And the wise man's wise man puts them together like well-driven nails that are given by one shepherd. The idea of one shepherd... Westminster Confession talks about how the Bible has a consent of all the parts. And one of the reasons it's so impressive is because of the fact that it's written across many centuries. And so, since we have many authors across many centuries, the Bible is written as though it were by one author. Because it is. And so the one author of the scripture, the Holy Spirit, causes us to see the design of a rational mind. And so the coherence of the scriptures is a part of its beauty. And the work of the Spirit to cause wise men to be enlightened, to be illuminated, to be able to see the truth, and to communicate it, and to communicate the system, is a part of the beauty of that work. And when we think about the work of church councils across time, for example, the Westminster Assembly, the putting together of systematics in such a way as to make things more clear and understandable, that would be a following after the kind of work that Solomon did. Solomon doing it inspired, the, the breathing out of God's words, and the Westminster Assembly doing it fallibly, attempting to pull together by the word and spirit what is needful for the church at its stage of maturity, drawing out what has been given in the full revelation and seeking to make advance in terms of making clear and making plainer what has been revealed. Now, Verse 12, And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. But there's more books than you could read. You don't have the energy to read them all. You don't have the time to read them all. And so the selection of books becomes important. Right? When you could, on a particular subject, if you could read the best book, would that be better than reading the third best? Like, just... Wouldn't that be better? And so finding the best of something on the subject that is the most important. If you, if you could always pick the best book on the subject that would be most helpful for you at any particular time, your sanctification, your growth in wisdom would go so much faster than what happens in reality, which is... You typically don't read the best book, and it's not always on the subject that you really need to be focusing on. Maybe that's just me. So, 
this idea that we should seek to have the best things and to give attention to them and to, to see these delightful, upright words of truth that are organized, being put into proper place in an order that shows their coherence. The book of Proverbs provides that. The book of Proverbs is that. Now, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. So the idea of the fear of the Lord leading to wisdom, it's the beginning of wisdom, the idea that the knowledge of God and the means to grow in the knowledge of God, that's, that's the whole of it. The commandments of God teach us how to grow in the knowledge of God. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So every, every action you ever commit right, is going to have an eternal significance. And so that eternal significance makes it so that we should be concerned to do the right thing and to look for wisdom. So this gives us a perspective coming into Proverbs. Proverbs is not a random hodgepodge of statements. The short statements in Proverbs chapter 10 through 30 are ordered they are placed well as by a master builder. And so in this placement, there is a systematic arrangement. So let's look at Proverbs 10. We're going to be reading through verse 16 today. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. He who is a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous is blessed but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prouding fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prouding fool will fall. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous leads to life, but the wages of the wicked to sin. Well, so we start off the Proverbs of Solomon. This is the start of the new collection. It's the end of the section focused on the youth. It's the start of the section focused on the adult. A summary statement is made here of the points of the first nine chapters. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Seems to capture pretty well what the first nine chapters said. And so with that as a background, we build from there. So let's consider this statement by itself. A wise son makes a glad father. It's generally more difficult to cause fathers to be pleased with their sons than to cause mothers to be pleased with their sons. But a wise son 
will not only please his father, but make his father generally glad. And there's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. Now, one, following on that, we have the, the, the following statement, which you know, essentially says that it's typically more difficult to alienate a mother from her son than it is to alienate a father from his son. Fathers understand the weaknesses of sons typically better than mothers do. And it's easier for them to see their own weaknesses in their sons. Now, because of that, it's easier for fathers to be harder on their sons. There's a masculine element in terms of, of the relationship as well. And there's a desire to see the son not be weak. And so fathers are going to be tending to, to discipline their sons more strongly than the mother will. On the inverse of that, you think about this. Mothers tend to see the weaknesses of daughters more easily than they do to see the weaknesses of their sons. And many women, the difference in thinking, there's two major ways in which men and women think differently from each other. Men, the focus on respect and authority, and also the domination of men's minds to a certain extent by sexual lust. These things are different from the way that women are bent. And so the inability to see the rebellion and the inability to see the sexual lust that young men operate off of is something that women do not press in as hard typically on their sons as men do. But with young women, mothers see the weaknesses in their daughters and so there tends to be a greater disciplining there, whereas fathers are known for being manipulated by daughters. And the tendency for fathers to see their daughters as not necessarily as um, rule-breaking as boys is going to make it so that mothers tend to discipline the daughters more than the fathers do. I'm not saying that's necessarily the way it should be. I'm just expressing a tendency that occurs. And so when we see in this text the idea that a wise son makes a glad father, not just a father that's approving of the son, but rather a father that's glad generally. That's a powerful statement about wisdom in the son. And when we talk about the idea of a foolish son being a grief to his mother, not just the father, but to the mother, this is a statement about the degree to which there is blessing and cursing for sons being wise or being foolish. Now, we go into the particulars. The next section focuses on it, and I said verses 2 to 5, but verse 6 is sort of a bridge, okay? so it fits into both. But So verse 2, we're starting this section on sort of wisdom, work, and the fruit of it. And so we're seeing over and over again a tendency of looking at the reaping and the sowing. And interestingly, in the adult section, there is a tendency to focus at the beginning on this idea of what you sow. And then there's this idea of, of sort of the, um, the root, the taking root. We'll see a sort of fruit bearing, and then this idea of the increasing closeness of the enjoyment of God. These will be tendencies of the Proverbs as we go through this middle section. They will emphasize towards one thing and the other. So in the beginning here, there's a great emphasis on the idea of the sowing and what eventually gets reaped. So treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. 
He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. We're back at verse 2. So the treasures of wickedness, think about, think literally of money, right? You're getting the money that you get by doing wickedness, like dishonest gain. Any goods, apparent blessings, sign blessings, uh, they're not good if they're obtained through means other than the means appointed by God. It's sin. They are in reality a loss, and they encourage further loss. The short-term pleasures of sin encourage further sin and cause a building up of curse and pain. And so the treasures of wickedness, they profit nothing. They encourage loss, and they do not bring ultimate profit. Righteousness, though, if it seems to bring trouble, it delivers from great losses. It delivers from death. So, when we think about the treasures of wickedness, they, they cause us to be trained or habituated in amusement, to distract ourselves, to not think. And the curse that follows, or that's mingled with the enjoyments, do not accomplish our true good unless we repent. And so the enjoyment itself, when we have ill-gotten gains, are a thing that are not profitable and doesn't bring profit. It trains in the opposite direction. And so this should cause us to draw the conclusion that pragmatism, rather than careful application of the law of God, is the least pragmatic course of action. This This is a proverb against pragmatism. So what we should do is seek to apply the law of God in detail and realize that pragmatism is not pragmatic. Now verse 3, The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. Okay, so the righteous soul will not be famished. We can think about daily bread and the provision to do our duty. And we can think about the fact that when we prosper, we have the knowledge of what is good, and it provides meaning to the enjoyment of the blessings that we have. And so, when you have a feast, hopefully, has anybody here read or seen Macbeth? I'm just going to pretend like you have. So, in the process of killing the king and taking the throne, Macbeth has a wife who is excited about this, and she's excited because she'll get to have the feasting halls with the nobles. Right? Because what wife doesn't want to be the hostess with the mostess with all the nobles there? right? And so when you have all the nobles there, then obviously the party will be good. Except that Macbeth is governed by this sense of having to do whatever it takes to maintain his power. And he's always concerned about being discovered. And so having these nobles in his house is sort of a concentrated opportunity for them to find out that he's guilty of murdering the previous king. And so he either sees a ghost of the previous king or has delusions about it. And so in this process of trying to enjoy the feasting that comes with killing the king and taking his place, it all turns to ash in his mouth. 
And so when we do what is right and have things that we gain through proper means, it comes without toil and strife and suffering. But when we have ill-gotten gains, they become things that are difficult to enjoy because when we connect them to anything else other than just the moment, the guilt and the meaninglessness of it storms in. And so, the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish and cast away the desire of the wicked. Even when they get what they want, they're bored with it. So, you either have lack and frustration, or you have abundance and boredom as the wicked. And as the righteous, even when you have lack, you know that the Lord ultimately is accomplishing your good, that your suffering for doing righteousness and in the midst of suffering doing righteousness causes a meaningful participation in that suffering. It diminishes the lows and it increases the highs. Now on the other side, rather than Macbeth and his feasting with ash in his mouth, if you feast and you have good cause for a feast, there's a truly beautiful thing. For a king to feast with his nobles in his court with his queen and for them to be able to enjoy righteousness in the land, to see justice done, to see wisdom spread, to be truth, to see truth acknowledged, to see beauty raised up. These are things that are enjoyable. And so these things magnify the glory of God in the earth. And we've talked about how feasting is something that gets emphasized in the scriptures. And in the book of Proverbs, there's this call of wisdom to her a feast. And so the beauty of feasting is is good. Abundance is good because it allows for this sort of blessing and the idea that you can show the beauty of things more fully. Verse 4, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is now sort of explaining a part of the ordinary means. Why does the Lord not allow the righteous to famish? Well, he causes the righteous to sow and to harvest at proper times. He gives diligence. He was a slack hand, becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Diligence is righteousness. And the wicked are going to tend towards being slack-handed. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who makes shame. So we're not an agrarian society. So what's that about? Gathering in summer is hard. It's hot. And typically, there's not a lot of things that are ready to be harvested. The work is harder and the rewards are lower. So, the son who is diligent, who is wise, who is righteous, gathers in the summer when it's hard and less fruitful. Now, the foolish son sleeps in the time of harvest. Now, in case you were particularly unaware of anything agrarian, the harvest time is when the food is ready to go. And it's cool outside, so it's easier to work, and there are greater rewards for that work. And so the foolish son does not gather when the work is easy and the yields are high. Now, diligence tends towards wealth. We see Psalm 128, it talks about the idea of, of the, the man that fears the Lord shall eat of his hand's labor. They shall eat of the fruit of his hand's labor. Now, this theme, 
point nine on page three. The wicked do not have the motive to work and become slack-handed. I've talked to you about the diffidence of Adam, right? We, John Milton, in Paradise Lost, Samson, Samson Agonistes, and Paradise Regained. He has this sort of trio of men. Adam is diffident. He doesn't guard Eve sufficiently. He doesn't do the work sufficiently. He doesn't work as a prophet hard enough. And as a result, he sees his own wife seduced in front of him by the serpent. And so there is this this weakness of the man, the failure to intervene. Samson, on the other hand, has a sort of domineering or conquering attitude. He takes what he wants and then seeks to quickly go to the enjoyment of the fruits of the labor, but to not diligently preserve them. There's a a getting and not a maintaining. Adam received and did not maintain. And so Christ, on the other hand, is a display of diligence. You might say the Apostle Paul is another example of diligence put out in the scriptures. He says he worked harder than all the other apostles. This idea that there's a seeking to plant and seeking to maintain. And so diffidence on the one side, a failure to act, a domineering on the other, trying to get and then not doing the work to maintain. Diligence. And so diligence invests and then has expectation. The temptation of fathers with sons and with other things is often the temptation of expectation without investment. And so we are called to work not only in the garden in terms of the physical dominion, but we are called to work in the gardens of the souls of those who are placed under our authority. So think about Deuteronomy 6 and the idea of, of teaching the children. That's, that's this planting of the word there, a watering of the word. It's, a, it's an ongoing work there, both to plant and then to maintain. So he who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son, and he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Page 5. Oh, no, I'm sorry, page 4. Now, verse 6 is a transition verse. So verses 16 through 14, okay, we're going to have sort of, there's, there's two clusters here, and it's actually kind of a, a double chiasm. I'm not going to go into analyzing the chiasm today. But the, the wisdom continues to be looked at in terms of how it results in speech, and then wisdom manifests itself in terms of fruit. And so we again have a reaping and a sowing. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a pratting fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Okay. 
So verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And the memory, verse 7, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. So the head is, is pointing to the whole, right? The, the blessings on the head, it's a covering and blessing, the blessing of the whole. And when we think about the mouth being covered in wickedness, this is sort of a, um, the idea that violence covers the mouth of the wicked. This points to both are kind of language of covering. One yields curse. So violence as curse and blessing in the general form on the head. And so we're moving to the subject matter of speech, but we're also dealing still with, remember this is a transitional verse, we're dealing with the fruits of labor. And so blessing comes with diligent labor. And those who are slack-handed and are not diligent also tend to speak words that are destructive. He who is slack-handed is a brother to the destroyer. And so this idea of the words that destroy... Because of the blessing that's on the righteous, people remember them fondly. There is a blessing on the memory of the righteous. <coughs> and so we could say there's a blessing on their name, their reputation. The name of the wicked, the memory of the wicked, rots. And so this lasting concern. There, there is, in the Greek-speaking world, there was a, a dominance to the concern about the name. There's, there's a concern also in the Hebrew culture in terms of it's an honor culture. But the Greek view, when you look at a similar period of time, about the time that the, the, the Iliad is supposed to be taking place, you know, around 800 B.C. That's a couple hundred years after the writing of, of Proverbs. The idea is that Achilles makes a choice to pursue his class, his glory. He chooses to have a name that will last across generations rather than a happy home with children and peace. And so this choice of the good life of, of, of class, of glory, there is a draw to that and you might think, rather than focusing on diligently building a home, I can go and do great things and be a destroyer and be a man in the world and get glory for myself. But the Bible teaches that the best way to have a name that lasts is to apply the law of God. You have children. You build a home. You pass along the knowledge of God and there's an honoring of your name across time, and there's a remembrance and a comeuppance at the day of judgment. And so there is a greater glory in godliness, in victory in all the fields of battle known to man. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a pratting fool will fall. Now, the literal language is, I suppose the pratting fool, it's, it's the, the, the foolish of lips. Right? So, Foolish of lips, those who are, who are speaking without the signs of wisdom. And we'll fall, that's good. We could say we'll be thrust down, we'll be ruined, right? So the fall or, or destruction here. So 
the prating, a prating fool will fall. Uh, we, we contrast that with the wise in heart receiving commands, right? So listening versus speaking foolishly. So wisdom encourages hearing of more wisdom, and foolishness encourages more foolishness. So you begin to see the danger of being a fool, and you see the danger of being around fools. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. Walking in the way that aligns the inward man, the words, and the actions with the law of God is strengthening. It, It fortifies the wisdom in the heart, right? You're reinforcing wisdom. It fortifies the man in his place, so it builds your reputation. Didn't we just read about that? And later on, you would find that it fortifies the power of a throne, right? By, by justice is the throne established. And so we see that there's a way in which you can walk securely because you're going to be somebody who can be relied upon to be stable. Your position is going to be strong. And the position that you hold, you're strengthening it so that it will still be useful after you. Think about the way that you know, godless liberals tear down our institutions now. Right? The releasing of a court decision uh, in order to encourage violence. And oh, shock, somebody appears attempting murder against a Supreme Court justice who is seeking to overturn Roe v. Wade. Right? Is this, I mean, this was the immediate response of anybody who saw it was leaked. Right? Is Oh, so now one of them might die. Right? And this effort to tear down the institution Right? This, this sort of breaking of confidence is the breaking of trust when a servant betrays the person he works for. It's a destructive force for the institution. And it's a tearing down of one's own house. We, we see that when you do not walk with integrity, you create instability around you. He who perverts his ways will become known. And the interesting thing is, that God causes that to be revealed. It causes the reputation of the destroyer to be ruined. It causes their position to be lost. It causes, there's a providential justice that occurs even in this life. And so, why do we do evil? Because we think it's pragmatic. Because we think it's better. Because we think it's the wise course of action. And our stupidity is such that we all sitting in this room nod our heads, and yet we still sin. And so meditating on the law of God, day and night, so that we can identify these things, and see the beauty of righteousness, and to believe the fact that, even though this will cause loss right now, it will be a gain. We have to believe it, and so the Proverbs are trying to dredge up the muck in our souls, our deep-seated pragmatism, where we think, yeah, the law of God is really good and wise, and it really does teach us how to do things better and to have a better life. But right now, this thing, just for the short term, I just, I'm, almost, I'm almost done with this thing. And then, then I will apply the law of God so detailed you won't be able to believe it. Verse 10. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a pratting fool will fall. Wait a second. Didn't we just hear about the pratting fool? You think maybe the repetition is designed to help us to see a connection and to have us be drawing forward and linking things. Perhaps Proverbs is not a bunch of random things associatively 
put together. Perhaps there's a way in which we're being called to start associating things. So, verse 10, he who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. So we heard that in verse 8. Let's go back and read verse 8. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. What is winking of the eye here? Well, it could be a hidden mockery. It could be an unnecessarily subtle communication. It could be overly familiar communication. But we just saw a couple of verses ago the idea of the pratting fool will fall, and it was about not hearing commands. So if we think about these possible interpretations, which one's most associated with rejecting lawful authority structures? Being overly familiar? Possibly. That could undermine authority. Subtle, unnecessarily subtle communication? Uh, sort of a creating of, of doubt, so to speak. That can be done. You can do that to undermine authority. But hidden mockery is a direct assault on authority. And so, you know, I walk by and I make some statement about self-control while picking up a donut and you guys <laughs> wink at each other. You know, that would be an example of that. So, if that happens, then that would be sort of the analog drawing together verses 8 and 10. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. So now we're, being, we're drawing these things together. Does that give you more meaning to verse 8? Do you see how that helps to draw out verse 8? And so now you start to go, okay, so the, the prating fool language is associated with this idea of rebellion and not hearing correction, not hearing commands, not seeking out wisdom, but sort of a scoffer attitude. This is explaining for us the scoffer in more detail. We were introduced to the scoffer. You remember him. It was in verses chapters 1 through 9. And so this idea of drawing together these things. I wonder if verse 10 has anything to do with verse 9. Let's just consider the possibility for a second. Verse 9. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. Walking with integrity and perverting your ways becoming known. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. Well, you know, not having integrity seems kind of like unnecessarily subtle communication that's designed to deceive. And Perverting your way, again, using subtlety to try to deceive and to get ill-gotten gains. So, wait a second. It's possible to draw out multiple applications from the idea of the winking of the eye. And so maybe it's not just hidden mocking. Maybe it's also unnecessarily subtle communication. And maybe we'll find other verses that help us to see that it's also overly familiar communication. And so you see that these proverbs, which are designed to be meditated upon, and are pithy sayings, they're designed to have many applications. And so these 375 proverbs of Solomon are designed to be ammo that makes it so you can travel light. You have less material in your mind, but you can meditate on it. And by keeping the gears from gunking up with 
bad and useless reading. You keep yourself functioning at a high level, thinking about the Proverbs that have been revealed and set in order. And these things connect to each other. And I want to suggest to you that we could do the same thing in a network of these Proverbs, comparing them with each other. That they will cause us to draw out more applications from each other. And so all of a sudden you see how having 375 of them, you might say if there were more, that would be difficult to be able to ponder. And you might even say 375, couldn't we reduce it further? Because comparing them and contrasting them to each other sounds like a difficult process with 375. Now, running out of time. So, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Right? The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. So it's a means towards life. It communicates life-giving words. Those words themselves are life. The idea that the violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hey, we saw that phrase back in verse 6. I'll let you do the drawing of comparisons. But verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. I wonder if the mouth of the righteous speaking words of life does anything to help their reputations. I wonder if that's any part of their diligent work in life. Verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Do you think words of life relate to that in any way? Strife, creation kills. And it uses words of violence. And covering of love, covering in love gives life. It avoids unnecessary conflicts. Now, I was delusional when I got up here and thought, you know what, we'll be able to look at question 99 of the larger catechism and also 151, which is what I actually meant to put there, but they both are important. So you should write down 151. 151 helps you to make determinations about when to engage in conflict resolution because it lists out principles for determining how grievous sin is. 99 gives you principles of reading the law and finding applications as you draw it out. So I want to strongly encourage you, and I hope you will become tired of me saying this as we go through this part of Proverbs, I will strongly encourage you to read question 99 and question 151 in the larger catechism and to become very familiar with them. Let me double-check myself just to make sure I'm not giving you the wrong reference. Everybody spends a bunch of time on something that doesn't make sense. Yeah, 151, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? All right. Now, verse 13, wisdom is found in the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. So, wisdom is the sign of the reality. Words of wisdom are the sign of, of the resting of wisdom in the heart. And Actions that deserve getting beat with a rod are a pretty strong sign of the residing of foolishness in the heart. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Okay? Seeing somebody study and seeking to get knowledge is a sign of wisdom. And seeing somebody say words that are in the categories we just studied in verse 12 and verse 11... Those are signs of foolishness. And they also have a cause and an effect relationship. So, I would encourage you to think about that. Verses 15 and 16 I'm going to go into next time. I'm going to stop here. Let's pray. 
Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would cause us to think upon these words and to not have them to be as a foot out of joint, but to have these words be useful to us, that they would not be limp, but that they would be put to good use, that we would meditate on them, that we would apply them, and we would apply them rightly, that we would be able to speak them in an appropriate time, that we would choose the right words at the right time, that we would be able to speak through this studying in such a way that our words are apples of gold in a setting of silver. So, Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Comments, questions, objections from those with speaking rights?